Sarah, welcome back. It's good to be back. Newbie questions starting on a little bit of a somber note this week. Uh, friend of the show, really enjoyed my podcast with him. Uh, consummate professionally. He was one of the only people that volunteered to give us separate audio files, separate angles. And the quality of the conversation generally, generally was brilliant. Derek Teal, he's dialed health over on Instagram. He got hit by a car out training and it was pretty serious. And by all accounts, he's lucky to be alive. He's recovering in hospital. He's past the acute, is he going to make it? Is he not phased? He's going to pull through, but he's a lot of severe damage, including multiple leg breaks. I actually found out about him getting hit by the car about 20 minutes after recording a really difficult podcast with Sean Landers, who lost his girlfriend tragically in a road traffic accident. She was out cycling with him and she passed away last year. So it was like a double whammy that evening. I was feeling, I was feeling pretty emotional. Yeah, I mean, obviously Gabby is very close to us. Uh, Sean, that podcast is going to be released in a couple of weeks and I'm sure it will be a very emotional listen for people to hear the full story. Um, Derek, what a what a, an amazing guest that we had on and actually what stood out to me, what I remembered was from when I was going through the recording before it went for editing and his kids, you could hear his kids in the background and he was trying to tell them to kind of be quiet because he was recording. So he does have kids. This was a hit and run as well. So the driver fled the scene after hitting Derek. I don't know. I mean, also the way that these uh, incidents are reported in media is a disgrace. You know, a cyclist, uh, a motorist, it never says motorist knocks down cyclist or anything. It's always kind of worded in a way that seems very pro-motorist to me sometimes. But yeah, our thoughts and prayers go out to Derek and hopefully he doesn't have any long lasting or life altering injuries from this. I've had bad crashes in the US. And one thing I will say is healthcare is super expensive in the US. And we don't normally do this because we do get inundated with charities asking, can we promote their cause or can we promote the latest cycle coming up? So we typically steer away from promoting all that stuff. But we are going to leave a link to Derek's fundraiser below because I like to think cycling is a little community that bandies together at times like this. So if you can support Derek because he's going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills to get back on his feet, and the link is down below. Yeah, Derek is a roadman. So please, please support him. Okay. In other news, Anthony, we had a very interesting kind of conversation. It was actually in Le Quip. Am I pronouncing Le Keep? Sorry, my pronunciation is quite poor. I've spent no time in France, so please pardon my... Did you not hear me butchering? Throughout the Tour de France Femme last year, I absolutely butchered every single climb, every single road, every single stage. My French pronunciation is absolutely terrible. And actually, so is my Spanish, which you're going to hear now in a second, because is CBO... Eusebio. Eusebio. Unzi. Unzi. The movie star. Are you going to learn a difficulty? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you're allowed to say that. (laughs) But he's the team manager for movie star. Looks like you've been deprived oxygen. (laughs) He was essentially interviewed in L'Equipe and he was basically posing the question as to why not allow substitutes when a rider is forced to abandon a grand tour, you know, if they get sick, if they get injured. So basically having 10 or 12 riders 
having however many's on the team for a Grand Tour? Eight? Yeah, I think I'm not sure. Eight, I think. And then having a couple kind of in the wings, ready to go if crashes, injury, anything like that happens. He thinks that substitutions are potentially a really, really good thing. So his question is, why not allow a rider? So I'm Mm. going to take just a pot shot at why not allow a rider. (laughs) Just in case your sprinter, your lead out man and your big roller all start to feel a little bit of a stomach bug coming on before the Pyrenees and the Alps and you substitute in three climbing domestics for your GC contentions. It's an absolute shambles of an idea. Yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? Every sprinter in the race is going to start feeling sick in favour of a climber as soon as they get past the flat stages. Yeah, of course. It seems absolutely ludicrous. I was kind of looking up when substitutions were first brought into football. They weren't always a thing, you know. Football's been kind of, the football as we know it, where the rules and regulations started in 1888, and they weren't allowed to bring substitutions in until 1958. So I think his point is, like, let's, like soccer, modernise the sport, let's try something different, and it might kind of keep teams in contention for later on like I totally agree with you I can see a lot of underhanded things going on here (laughs) common sense you're not gonna bring in I don't know maybe you like have silos and you've like if you lose a sprinter you have to bring in a sprinter but then other sprinters you know Sagan could get over the high mountains for a long time and other sprinters can't okay it's a it's a dumb debate because it's never gonna happen let's move on to the Saudis yeah, let's move on to the Saudis. So other news this week from the, the Middle East, the kingdom. Yeah, so the Saudi League, this is happening apparently. Orgy Sports Investment, so that's the sports arm of Saudi Arabia's investment fund. They're just about to press go on a $250 million investment in this project. It's being headed by several major European cycling teams. So this is basically a splinter off. It's a new race that the Saudis are funding. And there's been links to this project with team Visma, Lisa Bike and Ineos, which is quite interesting. So the teams are really motivated, they say, because they believe that the majority of the profits that the Tour de France, the Giro, all of the big races and all of these big events, all of the profits go to the organisers and not the teams, not the riders. And they want these races structured in a little bit of a different way, a fairer way in their opinion. So this is happening there. As I said, they're about to sign the dotted line and all of this. And it'll be definitely one to watch. I mean, we're seeing more and well, look, more. Look, I don't think let's say this. Like, this is happening. This proposed that it's happening. It hasn't mm. been signed, so it's not happening, definitely. So there's a chance that this could happen rather than it's definitely happening. What strikes me with it is the figure, 250 million. It's absolutely tiny. They're essentially you're going to buy cycling for 250 million. To put that into context with Saudi Arabia, we had in golf, which I know both me and Sarah are jump on the bandwagon fans around the time of the majors, as we are with every major sporting event like darts, Six Nations, World Cup. If you jump on the bandwagon, even for a little bit in golf, you'll see there's this debate going on where they've had a breakaway league called the Live League. And one of the top players from the PGA Tour was enticed over to the Live League, John Ram. So John Ram alone reportedly got between four and six hundred million for going across to the Live League. So you're telling me you can buy the entirety of cycling for 250 million and John Ram 
quarter of earnings, 600 million? I think they're two different things. I think they are paying to host this new or set up this new league. But then I think there's going to be a lot more money in the pot for enticing teams and managers, riders over to that new league. That's kind of what I so have in my head. 250 million is like the infrastructure for that's, building this league? That's what I think. This is, I literally, there's no more information that I can get on this, but that's kind of the way I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. Uh, look, I don't hate the idea of it. I think the UCI needs a slap in the face, but I don't want to see like the best riders not racing each other on I the know. I don't want a debate going on where it's like, oh well Wout van Aert's in the Saudi league, would he have won San Remo, Vanderpoel won it, but would he have won it? Because we have that in golf, like where the be- some of the best players in the world aren't in Competing the PGA Tour anymore. Yeah. And some of the best players couldn't play the Ryder Cup. And then we've seen it in darts for years as well, where the best players were in opposing federations. And even more locally in Ireland, we had that in, you know, what Olympic, I can't remember the year the Olympics, but there was two Irish teams at the Olympics and they, someone will tell me in the comments below what year that was. And the Irish teams were actually having a punch up on the start line. There was killings between the two Irish teams. two federations on the same island. two federations. It'll be interesting. Do you know what I'm thinking? Just as I, the more that I think about this new, this new league, will we be allowed any type, any height aero socks? Will we be allowed the, allowed the uh, tuck position that you're not allowed to do anymore? All of, okay, some of those rules are for safety, but some of the UCI rules are a little bit ludicrous and maybe they'll have a little bit more leeway in this new league. And as I said, like the UCI aren't going to be managing this at all. So I think the bigger knows question, what will happen. rather than aero socks, where my head went and maybe your head should have went, we would be allowed female racing. Oh yeah. Oh definitely. I mean I think I think that they want to promote female racing as well. I don't think I don't think that anybody would, you know, allow them not to you know, have both sexes racing uh, in this day and age. Who knows what I would be completely shocked if they didn't. Okay, let's move on. Okay, we'll go on to our questions. Hey guys, any tips for meditating or mindfulness? I've looked it up online, but I seem to be getting a lot of hippies with crystals. That's not for me. I'm a bloke's bloke. I need it explained to me without all of the flowery language. I love this. I can just, he's just typing there and he's drinking a pint. <laughs> and he wants to know, he's, you know, he's in his, I know, vest, but he wants to know about mindfulness and meditation. I, I don't think it needs to be flowery, hippie. No. I think there's a couple of like, steps you can do to get the most out of it. You know, you could do this on the buildings, find a quiet corner on the scaffolding <laughs> for yourself. I think that's the first step. It's find a quiet place. Somewhere where you're not going to be disturbed, a chair, a bed, like I said, a corner in the building site. Set a time limit, you know, start out with five minutes, set five minutes on your phone where you're just going to be present for five minutes. Be comfortable so you're not shifting around and actually worried about, oh, my ass is killing me in this position or my back is killing me. The easiest thing to focus on is your breath. So close your eyes and bring your attention to your breath and try and, I listen to Sam Harris in the Waking Up app and he has a beautiful expression where he says to try and cover your breath, cover your breath with attention. So try and focus on all the way in, like you're actually paying attention to it all the way in and all the way out. And I count it to 10 and then I start again once I get to 10. And as soon as your mind wanders, which it invariably will wander, and you'll start thinking about the bill you haven't paid or the email you haven't sent, bring it back to your breath and start focusing on your breath again. And 
be non-judgmental because that's what I found hardest at the start when I was like, oh, I'm shit at this meditation. My mind keeps wandering. Everybody's mind wanders. Be kind to yourself when your mind does wander and just bring it back to your breath. And then if you want to go really hardcore on it and just add something extra at the end, finish it off when the timer goes off after your five minutes with just quietly thinking about two or three things that you're grateful for. And that could be you know, you're grateful for the 10 euro in your pocket that you could buy lunch today. You're grateful for the petrol in your car, the roof over your head, whatever it is, just two or three things to be grateful for. And that's kind of my little whistle-stop tour of mindfulness for builders. Well, I think that what you described there is more kind of meditation. And there is a little bit of a, which you did beautifully, Anthony. Thank you. Now, so I'm absolutely shocking at meditation and I never, ever do it. I've tried it a million times and I can't seem to get myself into that state. Now, I haven't practiced it enough and I haven't been consistent enough with it. It is lovely and it's lovely to be able to take that little bit of time for yourself. What I'm better at is mindfulness rather than meditation mindfulness is more about being in the moment so if you're playing with your kids everything you're doing is focused on your kids you're not thinking okay uh, when am I going to get to go ride my bike checking your phone on Instagram you know you hear your phone pinging and you're going oh my god I must check that email it's being out on your bike and being totally absorbed by being on the bike and taking everything Be where in. your feet are. Be where your feet are. And that to me is mindfulness rather than meditation. I find that a lot easier to practice. That's kind of what I would advise you to start off with. And then, of course, Anthony mentioned a couple of things there with regards to apps. There's as many apps out there as there is grains of sand, you know, for you that will absolutely guide you through a meditation process. So go and check those out and the very best of luck with it. Next one. Okay. Anthony, I listened to your podcast with Tim Spector and I've gone down a rabbit hole on gut microbiome. My journey with food has evolved from when I was young, when I would eat anything just to feel full, to a few years ago looking at food as fuel for my runs, rides and swims. And now after listening to your podcast with Professor Spector, I now want to dig deep even further to use food as medicine and to help nourish my microbiome. So my question is around diversity. I like to eat plain and simple foods and I mostly eat a balanced diet with protein, carbs and fat. How much diversity do I need in order to keep my gut healthy and happy? It's a good question. I have a podcast coming up with Tim Spector podcast, which you rightly pointed out was really interesting. And it got me thinking outside of the typical confines of macronutrients, because that's what I defaulted to for quite a long time. And I actually wasn't eating that many vegetables or fruits. Since the Tim Spector podcast, I've tried to incorporate more variety into my diet while still keeping an eye on macros. But building on that Tim Spector one, we have a podcast coming out with his co-host in Zoe, Dr. Sarah Berry, which is brilliant. And she kind of talks further about why we need that diverse gut microbiome. So different types of food, they have different nutrients and they have different fibers and they feed a wider range of beneficial bacteria in your gut. And a diverse microbiome, it's generally considered to be more resilient and is associated with better health. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but when she told me it was a baffling amount of different foods you need to eat per week, and that's including spices like and even like she was considering coffee one food type for okay. this kind of loose definition. But a very diet typically includes a higher intake of fiber, which is why she recommends 
instead of taking some, say you take orange juice, which we were all taught was healthy for a long time, and you strip the fiber from orange juice and now you just have oranges. But a lot of us have defaulted to saying, okay, we actually don't need the oranges. We could just replace that with vitamin C tablets, but it's not the same. It's not the same structure. You actually told me this after the podcast I came in, like this was a revelation and you're like, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like if you eat a piece of fruit, it's different to having that in a smoothie, in a juice. If you boil and vegetable, it does have different properties than if you eat it raw. Now, they might vary or they might be very, very little. It might be very large. But yeah, your food and how you treat it does, it changes how your body reacts to it and what nutrients you're giving your body based on how you prepare it. One of the things she told me that was really interesting is fiber isn't digested by your body. Fiber is fermented by your gut bacteria and that produces short short chain fatty acids. And that's what's critical for the gut health. So that's why we need fiber. I'm not doing full justice to how interesting that podcast is. That's going to be out in a couple of weeks or so, I think. Yeah, and I did a, I'm sure I don't live up to Dr. Sarah Berry's podcast with you, but I did a basically that was really a, an good. idiot's guide to gut microbiome. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. If you're interested in at starting if at you're ground an idiot, zero. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> if this is all complete news to you, you haven't a clue what we're waffling on about, go and check that out as a starter. Even if you want to listen to it before the Professor Tim Spector uh, podcast and then move on to Tim and then move into Strawberry. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Anthony, do you think that all young people should get trophies? I was at my kids' sports day a few weeks ago and everyone got a medal, no matter how good or bad you did. At the risk of sounding like an old fart, I totally disagree with this practice. Medals are for winners. They were in my day. What do you think? I'm conflicted. I was reading about Michael Phelps, not Michael Phelps, sorry, Ian Torp, who was the prelim to Michael Phelps almost. He was the New Zealand swimmer who just broke every world record, an Olympic record. and was this phenomenal. And he was really bad at team sports. He tried to play cricket. He tried to play rugby. He was just really bad and not coordinated. And he ended up trying his hand in swimming and things got better. Interesting fact, actually, he's allergic to chlorine as a no swimmer. Way. Can you believe that? And he had so many obstacles he had to overcome to actually get good at swimming. Because he was allergic to chlorine, he developed this very distinct style of his head out of the water which ended up being a lot faster, but super resilient. And that's one of the things definitely that led to his success. But early, he wasn't a very good athlete. And because of that, he obviously wasn't getting trophies and winning stuff. And he could have easily walked away from sport altogether. And I think that's the argument for giving people medals for participation. Like really, it doesn't matter if you win a medal or not. Like I happened to be a decent footballer and won trophies at a young age for playing football. And maybe that kept me in the sport for longer and led me into cycling, which led me to this podcast. If I hadn't got those trophies, would have been on the same career road? I don't know. Yeah, but if you had gotten medals for coming 20th, you wouldn't have been on the same career path anyway because you wouldn't actually have been successful at that sport to make a career out of it. Yeah, and I generally do agree with you, but the the pushback on why it is, you know, it's not just some like really super liberal, we're all winners type philosophy. It is rooted in 
sort of almost the spirit of sport, as cliche as that sounds. It's to foster a love for sport, for activity, for being outdoors, for, you know, being sweaty and doing that sort of stuff that's against the grain and to build self-esteem. And I don't know if they're, they're definitely not bad things. And does it maybe in some way devalue those striving for excellence or minimize the recognition of high achievers? Yeah, it definitely does. But to a point to offset the other good benefits, I, I don't know the answer. I know. I'm I'm with you. I'm very much on the fence. I mean, do we have it from an age up until, you know, five where everyone gets a medal? No one really cares. I mean, the thing is, as you were going through school and excelling on sports days, or I was always pretty handy at every sport that I tried. And it, you know, People, even if they came behind me in 20th place, they still knew that I was the the winner. You know what I mean? There was still a hierarchy and that they, they still knew that they weren't really a winner, that they weren't really very good at this particular sport. I'm also completely, yeah, as I said, not sure what what to think about this. I think parents need to foster you know, a sense of kind of self within their children. And I don't think it should, that is the responsibility of sports groups and schools to do that. If your kid isn't good at running or cross country and they're leaning more towards arts, music, perhaps put them into something like that. I don't think the kids care. Yeah, I'm thinking back to when I used to play football and anyone who plays football has this exact same experience. You play for an hour, it's red team against blue team. Blue team is winning 20 nil. And then the teacher says, okay, we have to finish it up in the next five minutes. And someone shouts, next goal winner. And the red team (laughs) score and they're the winner. Nobody cares. It's about just having the crack when you're that Mm. age. I think this is a concept maybe that's more important in parents' minds and society's mind that we're all winners. But do you think that, let's say me coming fifth or sixth in a competition, do you think that that actually in part makes me a more resilient person. I'm being able to take the no's and the knocks and the fails and bounce back up from them. And by giving a medal to me coming seventh or eighth, t- strips a person, a young person from learning that. Nah, it's next goal winner. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Nice short question here. Recovery boots, yay or nay? Yay. Short answer. (laughs) I think I had the physio from Orca Scott on a while ago, and I always default to this because I think it's a brilliant example of habit stacking. If you have the recovery boots on, that is one habit that aligns really nicely with a bunch of other healthy habits. So if you have the recovery boots on, your mindset is generally not going to flip to should I get the 16-inch pizza or the 22-inch pizza? It's flipping to, how's my hydration level? Have I taken my pillar magnesium before bed? Am I getting my eight-hour sleep a night? Am I looking at my HRV? It puts you into that mindset. Mm-hmm. So it's on a certain track. It's steering you mm-hmm. when you're using your recovery boots. Not using the recovery boots, I'm looking at the pizza menu. That's why I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I agree. I think the habit stacking, you're not going to sit there with your recovery boots and drink two bottles of wine. Smoke <laughs> Uh, We have the recovery boots and I have to say I'm completely obsessed with them, even if it's physically not giving me a benefit in my head. It's giving me a boost. I actually feel when I have them on the night before, I'm already preparing and I'm already psyching myself up for whatever session I have. Let's go to space, babe. They don't do anything. Yeah, probably not. I don't feel any different. Maybe I feel a little bit different, but I 
I don't really think it does anything. Yeah, but do you get what I'm saying? Like with regards to it, like mentally kind of prepares you. It's like getting your kit ready. It's like getting having your bike clean. Yeah. You just kind of think, do you know what? I am doing absolutely everything tonight to prepare for tomorrow. And that kind of gives me a confidence boost in how I'm going to perform, how I'm going to, you know, how I'm going to get through my session. Just motivation wise, mental motivation. I think they're absolutely brilliant. And, and I they, think fe- they feel kind of good. I like, I like them on. They, they, this is placebo as well. Yeah. If you think they work, they feel they great. Work. Yeah. So don't great. listen to this section. <laughs> Men in black out of your minds. And they do work. Okay. The last one here, and this is from David. And we get this, we were like, will we put this question in? Because we get asked this question I hate so this question. many times on the podcast. And we've, covered it a lot and I'm sure people will continue to write in about half wheeling. So I'm going to cover this one that David kindly sent in. Generally, why is it that riders who meet up for the first time end up in a half wheeling contest? Mostly men, I might add. I always ride to the slowest rider if just doing a social ride. Others seem to get a kick out of demonstrating how strong they are. And then he has hashtag willy waving, which I love. I'm going to use that next time I see somebody halfway. I'm going to be like, yeah, I don't think waving as willy around. I don't think that's correct. I don't think it's willy waving. He's just having a bit of fun with it. No, it's not a place for fun. (laughs) I think it's, I think it's an insecurity issue. It's uh, not secure in their mm. strengths relative to their peers in the group and they're trying to say no I am strong enough to be here I am here on merit I'm as good as you guys and they try to push the pace push the pace push the pace I've definitely done it myself when I was getting started when I was insecure and didn't know my place in a group and uh, definitely the first years getting started I thought that was how you showed your strength that's how you showcased oh look I'm making sacrifices off the bike I'm eating well I'm training well I'm looking after my equipment here's how I show it and it takes you a maturity and evolution in your cycling to realize that's not where you showcase if you are a little bit stronger that it's in races or even if it's not racing time of year most groups will have a designated place where they go a little bit harder up a segment or for a sprint sign or something like that uh yeah I just I don't think it's a good thing in groups. I don't think anyone thinks it's a good thing in groups. I don't know if you ever know you're the half-wheeler. Moharich knew he was the half-wheeler. Yeah, he he said he leans into it. He's like, yeah, I, anymore, I love he it. Yeah, he's like, I used to love it. Yeah, he used to be the half-wheeler. <laughs> if Moharich was half-wheeling me, I'd be dead. I'd just be like, okay, bye. <laughs> I think as a newbie, certainly the half-wheeling thing is interesting. I've certainly at the beginning went out on rides with you and you're like, why are you half-wheeling me? And I'm like, I actually don't even know what that is. I wasn't aware that I was doing it. I don't know what it is. And it's something certainly that newbies do. So please don't be shy on calling people out. I know I I think people are shy on calling people out. I think that's the thing. You need to have a real level of comfort in your surroundings to call people out on it. Yeah, maybe. I know I always reference the Dash group, the newbies group that I rode with um, two summers ago. And I was flat out saying, don't half wheel. And they just didn't realise. I don't think it was a dominance thing whatsoever. And here we go here in in David's comment, he said, why is it riders that meet up for the first time? And I'm just thinking it's, I think, give somebody the benefit of the doubt pointed out to them. I don't maybe. even think you know what you're doing if it's the first time either. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Sarah, to finish up, I've been on my whoosh every day. So for anyone in context that hasn't been listening to podcasts or following me on socials, I've been off the bike for four weeks because I had a bunch of stitches 
just under my hairline, which you can't see. So I had four weeks where I thought I was going to be like one day off the bike and I was four weeks totally off the bike. So I've been digging into the My Woosh sessions and I have been suffering more than a dog for the last week. It's been brutal. Yeah, it's been interesting watching you getting back. I think I'm actually fitter and stronger than you are at the don't moment. Know, don't <laughs> know. I am going to jump in and do a race. I'm going to go through the accreditation on My Woosh and do my first virtual race pretty soon. So report back on that one yeah same and anyone who's been f- following my social media will know that i've been i've started that process um why don't you do a podcast on we talked about this you might do a podcast yeah i might you. do a full podcast on it because there is a little bit to it because i'm not even sure how to do it either everybody should get stuck into my wish racing because there's not only is it a great way to stay fit if you're competitive it's fun but there's prize money there's so quit, much prize money quit your job yeah quit your job exactly <laughs> sarah thanks for chatting You're welcome. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed Sarah's ramblings, there's more of them in this podcast up here. And please do subscribe to the channel because it helps us to get bigger guests and it helps us to continue to fund the channel to make you amazing content. See you next week.